Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church this morning. Uh, it's always wonderful to see you here. And today, of course, is a special day that it is Reformation Day. It's one, actually, of two Reformation Days. One is the Protestant Reformation, and there was also a Roman Catholic Reformation. But uh, we concern ourselves with the Protestant Reformation. We, I always love to take some time and recognize that. We might this morning, but we also have a great passage to study this morning, and it may take us a little bit longer. So we'll see whether I go very far with uh, Reformation. Uh, maybe uh, continue that next week. Anyhow, one of the wonderful passages that was involved with the Reformation was Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and I add 10, 8 and 9, 10. And that is, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that by, and not by work, and that not by works, which we have done, we have accomplished. For God hath prepared for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the emphasis, of course, in verse 8 is that God has given us a grace plan. It's not that he has bestowed certain people grace. It's that he's giving it to all of us. And it's by faith, our faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has not bestowed on special people certain faith. It's uh, an understanding that, and this was the reformers began to understand, that it was not a gift of grace only to a few people given by God, but it was his plan for the human race. And our salvation comes by our own faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrificial work on the cross. And so this is a critical part for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding how our redemption occurs. So this morning, as we prepare for our service, it's important for us to remember that we take a few moments and we have a relationship as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we can break that relationship by sin. And we will be discussing sin today. So there will be opportunities for us to understand how we really lose the fellowship that we have with God the Holy Spirit and with the Father and the Son. But by confessing our sins, we're told if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's use that mechanic and let's also prepare ourselves for our uh, entire service. Let's bow our heads and close Bow your heads, close your eyes, and then I'll open us in prayer. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have this wonderful opportunity to gather as a church family to worship you, to learn more about you and your plan for us. We're thankful for the many forerunners who have provided for us many, many uh, years of study and precision regarding the Word of God. And we're thankful that today we remember them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please find a bulletin in back if you don't have one. It's absolutely wonderful. It's beautiful, the front. It represents represents Thanksgiving. And the passage on the front is Psalm 100. So I want to thank Wade and Marcia for a wonderful bulletin. The Apostle Paul is teaching the Corinthians. He's taught the Corinthians many things. And in the second letter that we have in our Bibles, Second Corinthians, he's teaching them about giving. And he says, this is my point. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give just as he determines or as you decide in your own heart, not reluctantly nor under compulsion. For the Lord loves a willing, a gracious, or a cheerful a cheerful giver. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the opportunity for us to express our love to you through giving. We ask for your blessing upon these gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are ready to begin our study here. I always like to go to a passage for the beginning of our worship service, and I like to call it call of worship. And this morning, our scripture is in Psalm 71. Psalm 71. It's a wonderful psalm. We'll take a short part of the passage at the beginning. 71 says, Psalm, again, 71, verse 1. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. And this is critical for our daily lives, trusting God for uh, the events that occur are the uh, brings tranquility to our lives, knowing that God is involved in everything that occurs. And uh, he is, even though we don't know it or we don't trust him. But it's important for us, I believe, to have him participate with us. He participates with us, as I said, even though uh, we may not request it. But it's comforting for us to approach him every with every event that it occurs. And some, you may think, are rather elementary. But, again, it comforts us and in sometimes causes events to occur 
in ways that we could never imagine. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Never let me be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to to escape. Incline your ear to me and deliver me. So the author here finds himself in a tight situation, a tight place. And he is asking for the Lord to see, which he does, understand it, and to hear his call for help. Incline your ear to me and deliver me. Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You have given the commandment to deliver me. In other words, our prayers requesting deliverance is going to be given in a mandate, in a directive from God. Now, we may not understand how God is going to deliver us. We may wish for something spectacular. On the other hand, it may not be that way. But God is there. He loves us and he is providing for us. For you are my rock and my fortress. Verse 4, deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. By you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually for you. Again, I love the those passages. They should be comforting to you as they are to me. What I would like to do this morning, before we go to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7 through 11, is just very quickly remember the Reformation. We should remember the, Ref- the Reformation is, yes, the 31st of October, and we assign the year 1517. But the Reformation had occurred many years prior to that. As a matter of fact, there are some who take it all the way back to the uh, 4th, 5th, and 6th century A.D. Uh, And I think that's possible because there were always those who knew the Word of God and were trying to apply it correctly. But it took a long time for the universal church, which we call the Catholic Church at the time, because the word Catholic means universe, universal. So it was the universal church, and everyone belonged to that church. But there were always those who said, this doesn't seem right. Should we really have a church tradition as either equal or above the Word of God? And there were many other items that were challenged because as the church 
grew, as it matured, there were always leaders who decided they wanted to add to the Bible or to worship. And so this is one of those events that while we choose a specific day to remember it, and I think that's uh, important for us to do, it really began many years prior to that by many men men and women who understood uh, the leading of God the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Word of God. And I've just listed, or I'll show just a few of those. Martin Luther, of course, is given much credit. Uh, Martin Martin Luther happened to have the type of personality that caused him to be determined to uh, follow his conscience, which he believed was being led by God the Holy Spirit. But there were others. Uh, Heydrich Zwingli, who was, by the way, uh, Martin Luther, was in Germany. Uh, Germany had not been had not formed at the time, but it was the German uh, territories, we could say, or areas. Zwingli was in in Switzerland. John Calvin started in in France and then also moved to Switzerland. Switzerland. John Wycliffe had lived both in England and in northern Europe, and then Thomas Cramner, who was from England. And uh, we could add many other names, um, both men and women, who continued to push against the authority of the Roman, uh, the Roman church. Uh, maybe next week I'll take more time to speak of the various changes that occurred uh, within the church at the time. And it not only changed the church, but it changed life, uh, geography, and society as a whole. And there are there is much that we could study with regard to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, <clears throat> but what we do know is that uh, over that period of time, the the changes that were made lead us to where we are today. And so it's important for us to remember it. All right. I'm going to stop there. And let's turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 is an important passage for the uh, for the entire chapter, but it's difficult for us to take the whole chapter in one gulp. So we take it in a few bites. And last week we studied 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6, and that leads us right in to verse 7 through 11. And of course, 11 leads us right into 12, uh, to the conclusion of chapter 6. And I continue to remind you that these 
chapters and verses are administrative mechanics for us to find these verses. But Paul wrote this this book, literally, we believe, uh, without any breaks, uh, because his mind knew exactly what he wanted to say, and God the Holy Spirit was assisting him. But it helps us to break these chapters. First, uh, First Corinthians 6 continues the correction that Paul is giving to the Corinthians. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, Paul addressed how believers should teach each other, particularly regarding their testimonies in front of unbelieving judges, how they should treat each other, not teach, how they should treat each other, particularly regarding their testimonies in front of unbelieving judges. As a matter of fact, what he's going to say is that you should never appear between an unbelieving judge. He directs believers to settle their disputes between themselves. This is a family, and that's how I like to approach it, that we live as believers in individual churches, and we are a family of believers. And if we have disputes or problems or divisions, we should settle it within that church, that group. In verses 7 through 11, Paul continues his guidance regarding godly behavior, particularly because the believer's future, the believer's future inheritance depends upon that behavior. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is maybe something a little different than I've done it previously, and that is we're going to work our way through these verses, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to give you the working translation that I'm using more or less or trying to present the the sense of what Paul is saying. And then we'll go through uh, a list of of what I like to call points about what Paul is saying through the entire paragraph. Instead of really breaking it into verses with and separating them with points, we'll take the whole thing as, uh, as a paragraph. All right. I think it's valuable for us to read verses 1 through 6 as we approach verses 7 through 11. So let's do that. Chapter 6, verse 1. There any of you having a matter against another, and this would be another believer, you as believers having a problem, a dispute with uh, another believer, there any of you go to law before the right, the unrighteous. In other words, peering between an unrighteous, an unbelieving judge, and not before the saints, meaning other believers. Verse 2, do you not know, and by the way, just an aside for those who 
like these little details. This is the first of six. Do you not know in this chapter? And Paul doesn't use this phrase uh, in the rest of the first Corinthians. So when he says to you, do you not know? Why would he ask that question? It's because he knows that they know this. Do you not know if it was no, we, we had no idea. Well, it would be uh, useless for him to ask that question. But he says, do you not know? And the answer is, yes, we do. We were taught this. So <clears throat> the first one here is, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And we studied that briefly. There's not a lot written in the, the word of God about how we as saints are going to judge the world. But we do know that we will have a resurrection body. And that resurrection body is going to be higher than angels. And when the Lord returns for the uh, millennial kingdom, we are going to return with him and we will assist him in ruling the world. That's a lot of information, and we could spend a lot of time studying that. But let's move on. And if the world will be ruled or judged by you, you all as believers, are you all unworthy to judge or to evaluate the smallest or the, the trivial matters? In other words, you've got matters within your church, why would you go to an unbelieving judge when you can solve it right here? You have that ability. And by the way, you're going to be judging and evaluate uh, much more in the future, he's saying. Verse 3, the second, do you not know that we shall judge or evaluate angels? There we are. Again, we don't have a lot of information about this, but Paul pulls back that veil and says, in the future, you as believers, you're going to be evaluating, you're going to be judging uh, angels because we will be greater than angels, we'll be higher than angels. Now, as I mentioned last week, I'm not saying that we're going to be judging holy or elect angels, but this will probably be fallen angels, but let me add this as a possibility because we will be higher than angels. God may use us as supervisors or directors for other angels that don't run out and come up with 30 or 40 points on how we're going to do that because we don't know. But it's a wonderful thing to contemplate. Do you not know that we shall judge, supervise, evaluate angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then, verse 4, you have judgments or controversies concerning things pertaining to this life in the church age, do you then appoint those unbelievers who are least esteemed by the church to judge another or to evaluate, meaning unbelieving judges. Five, 
I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, you all, not even one who will be able to judge or evaluate between his brethren, believer to believer, verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother. We can say, but believer goes to court against believer, another believer, and that before unbelievers, an unbeliever judge. All right, now verse verse 7. Now, therefore, and I'm just going to do my best to read right through here, 7 through 11. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you, for you all, that you all go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you all yourselves, you know, y'all yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your fellow brethren. Verse 9, do you not know, here's our third one, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And this is a command. This is an imperative. Do not be deceived. Do not be fooled. Do not be unaware. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor, verse 10, verse thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, And such were some of you, but you all were washed, but you all were sanctified, but you all were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This passage is very much disputed amongst theologians. Many that we revere and we would agree with them in most, if not all, other parts of the Bible. But the question, and we'll understand this as we as we approach verses 9 and 10, how should we understand these sins? And again, this is This is critical for us because not only do we need to understand these sins that are listed, but we have to understand what is meant by the inheritance here. And that, again, causes problems. 1 Corinthians 6-7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Now, I've simplified that in this working translation. To have lawsuits at it all with any believer is already a spiritual loss for you, you all. Why not rather be wronged? And this is one of the important words that we're going to see. Why not be wrong? It's adikeo. It's a verb here. Why not you allow yourselves to be wronged? Why not rather be cheated or defrauded? Now you'd say, well, I'm not sure I like to be wronged or be cheated. 
Well, we're going to see, as we have seen in some other passages, that there are times when we just let things go. It's not that important. Why? Because we would prefer to maintain the harmony within our relationships with other believers, particularly in our church family. 1 Corinthians 6, 8. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. The working uh, translation, on the contrary, you y'all yourselves wrong and cheat, and you all do this to your fellow brothers. Now, the word there for wrong is again our word, adikeo. It's doing something that's wrong. Uh, This can also be understood as maybe unrighteous. But I think if we stay with this understanding of doing wrong, it helps us. On the contrary, you all, yourselves, wrong and cheat. And, excuse me, and you all do this to your fellow believers. So that should be a conjunction and, not an, not an article. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. 6 and 9 and verse 10 really go together. But let me work verse 6, 9. Do you not know? And again, this question must be answered. Yes, you know. Why? Because Paul knows they know. He taught them this. Do you not know? Yes, you do. Yes, we do. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And we can go on in verse 10. But our working translation so far, do you not know that the wrongdoers, unrighteous, yes, adiketos, these uh, or These are the wrongdoers. And if we keep this understanding of doing wrong and being wrong, I think we understand this uh, more easily. Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not receive an inheritance in the kingdom of God? Y'all do not be fooled. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, the effeminate, nor sodomites, the ones who are more dominant. Uh, This is interesting, and it's not easily understood, and it's not easily necessarily taught, but this refers to a couple of homosexuals, and there's generally one who is more the soft, and that's what the word homosexuals means here, who are more the soft side, and then there is the harder or the dominant side. There's no really need for me to go beyond that. I think we understand that situation, and it can it can work, and it also very much works with uh, lesbians, couples as well. First Corinthians 6.10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor ex, uh, extort, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we've seen this word inherit twice now, This time I'm going to try to translate it so it makes, I think, a little more sense to us. But I'll explain this even more 
when we get to our points. The working translation, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will receive an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, some might say, I think I remember sometime in the past when I was, I got drunk. Am I going to lose all my inheritance? We'll get to this. And then our last verse. And such were some of you. That is a really important phrase, sentence. And such were some of you, of you all. And what's important here is the word some and the word all. You all, you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified. And the you here, but you, is a plural. But you all, this is the way we'd understand this, but you all were washed, but you all were sanctified, but you all were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Some of you, some of y'all, once lived this way. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All right. Now, hopefully those working uh, translations help you to understand this, and my uh, explanation helps as well. Now, I want to go to points uh, to explain this, and I think we can do this relatively quickly. Here we are. Paul's comments about the lifestyle of the Corinthian believers. 1 Corinthians 6, 7 through 11. First of all, in verses 7 through 11, Paul is speaking to the believers in the Corinthian church. And if you don't understand that, you don't accept that, then going forward is going to be exceedingly difficult. He's speaking to the believers. Paul is speaking to the believers in the Corinthian church. Paul is not speaking to unbelievers. Paul is not attempting to teach unbelievers the spiritual life. At the moment, unbelievers could not be further from his mind. He has his hands full with ungodly believers. He's not trying to change the world of unbelievers, he's trying to direct the believers in the Corinthian church. And you're kind of a little ahead of me saying, all of those sins, isn't that amazing? Second, in verse 6, Paul had said, and that's why I read verses 1 through 6, in verse 6, Paul had said that believers should not take other believers before unbelieving judges. Remember, that was his point. Why are you in a court? Why do you have a lawsuit against another believer and you're allowing an unbelieving judge to evaluate this? Well, when we get to verse 7, in verse 7, Paul takes another step. He says that as believers, it was completely a spiritual failure for these believers even to take other believers to court at all. So he goes beyond the unbelieving judges 
and says, why are you taking other believers from the church family to court at all? Remember, can't you find somebody to help you solve this problem? For Jesus teaches this principle during the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we can go to Matthew 5, 38 through 39, and get mired into the Sermon on the Mount for a couple weeks. But that passage is learning how to turn the other cheek. And by the way, we don't really need to discuss this that much because we've heard somebody, maybe even we've even said to someone, well, you just need to turn the other cheek. What do we mean when we say that? We mean, forget it. Did someone wrong you? Yes, they did. How important is it? Well, other than me being angry, me being resentful, probably not all that much. So just forget it. Turn the other cheek. I remember my mother saying that to her children. I'm not sure it ever worked, but uh, just, Dan, just turn the other cheek. Don't worry about it. And I knew just from the situation, the context, that it wasn't physically. It was a physical, it was a figure of speech, figure of speech. Turn the other cheek. This is not an opportunity to get yourself beaten into the ground. As believers, we must learn to turn the other cheek, which means to forget the offense. This is not a reference to a criminal act, but Jesus was teaching a personal offense. Are there reasons why a Christian may go to court? Yes. But Jesus is speaking of less important offenses. Simply overlook that offense. So if you've ever gone to church or gone to court or in the future you need to go to court, it's not that you can't. And there are those who would say, oh, well, I can't do that because that, that would I would have to go to church. You're missing the point here. If you need to go to court, then you need to go to court. But if it's another believer and it's a minor offense, forget it. It's not worth it, according to God. Five, Paul also asks two questions, which reveals his attitude towards the internal church squabs. So he's now going to ask two questions. Questions that we, I think, can very easily answer. Six, first, in order to maintain harmony within the church, Paul asks, why not just accept a wrong? Why not just accept it? In other words, just forget it. The relationship is more important than the dispute. That's what he's saying. The harmony, the harmonious, harmonious, the harmony between you and another believer is more important because you are a member of the body of Christ and so <clears throat> so is the other person. Seven. Secondly, continuing, we might say, Paul asks, why not just allow yourselves to be cheated or defrauded? Now, that may sound <clears throat> fairly serious, but... He's, again, not talking about something that is a major 
crime. You may be cheated. Somebody may have cheated you. Or you may feel like if you've been defrauded. And maybe you were. So he's saying, why not just allow yourself to be cheated? But he's really saying it's not that critical. Again, it aligns itself very well with the previous question. Again, maintaining harmony, uh, harmony is more important than getting even or demanding justice. Eight, Paul's point is that to avoid problems between believers, believers should dismiss disputes among themselves. To avoid problems between believers, believers should dismiss disputes among themselves. That's what he's teaching here. Nine, in verse eight, Paul says that the believers who are bringing lawsuits are you. So, while there were some listening and reading, verse seven, we're thinking he's talking about others. No, verse eight, Paul says that the believers who are bringing lawsuits are you yourselves. You're the ones who are doing the wrong and cheating your fellow believers. See, it sounds and was expressed that someone has wronged you. But forget it. Those who are not forgetting it, you now are the ones that are doing the wrong. That's what he's saying in verse 9. In verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous or the, the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the people that think they deserve to be uh, justified. No, you're gonna, you are going to be punished. Ten, in verse nine, Paul declares the problem with believers who are doing wrong. If you are not forgetting or if you are not forgetting the situation, not making a big deal of this, not making a mount a mountain out of a molehill, then you're the one that has a problem. So in verse 9, Paul declares the problem with believers who are doing wrong. 11, wrongdoers will not inherit, or we have to understand this, or will not receive their inheritance their rewards in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says in verse 9. Now, when you read this, you say, verse 9, the third, do you not know that the un, that the wrongdoers, many places have unrighteous, which is a fine understanding or translation, but I'd like to keep, sort of keep us aligned by saying, instead of unrighteous, say wrongdoers. Do you not know that undoers, uh, wrongdoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, what does he mean here by this, will not inherit? I've given you, I think, which is a better understanding. Verse 11, wrongdoers will not inherit or they will not receive their inheritance, their rewards in the kingdom of God. Those who we will now read the category, the category of sins. Twelve, inheriting does not mean 
enter. Inheriting does not mean enter. Not inherit means to lose inheritance. And this is an important understanding. He's speaking to believers. They have a relationship with God. They are members of the body of Christ. That can never be broken. But you can lose rewards. Inheritance, inheriting or inheritance, does not mean enter. Not inherit means to lose inheritance. For the believer, it means rewards. Well, we might understand that entering the kingdom of God is part of our inheritance. That is not Paul's point. Paul is addressing believers, and therefore entering the kingdom is not the point. As a believer, you're going to the kingdom, and that is secure. All believers will enter the kingdom, but the question is rewards. Will we be rewarded for a godly life, or will we be rewarded for a lifestyle that has been disobedient to God? Okay. Now, I have another six points, and I'd like to continue this, or otherwise, uh, during the week, you'll have some idea that's probably just a little afield. Thirteen, and this is an important point. And it's why it's important for us to see this now. In verses 9 through 10, remember this is where our list, our catalog of sins is found. In verses 9 through 10, Paul gives a list of sins. The list is not complete. Let's understand that. The list is not complete, but sufficient for us to understand Paul's point. This catalog can be described generally as willing sins. What do we mean by willing sins? Meaning that we're living a lifestyle of unconfessed sins. So you're living a lifestyle that Paul was going to describe. People normally have two different responses to Paul's first list, or to his list. First, they read with horror that believers could possibly commit such sins. They would never commit these sins because these sins are not simply their area of weakness. But they freely resent, gossip, criticize, and judge others who do. And what are those? Those happen to be sins. They're just not on this list. Secondly... The second response is to read the list and if you're and if you're honest find a couple that you recognize <laughs> I like that word you read the list and say I think I recognize a couple of these <clears throat> if you're not too calloused you wonder if all is lost well if you commit if you've committed some of these sins realize that they were sins confess them, and have grown spiritually away from these sins, then you're no longer on that list. On the other hand, if you continue to have a lifestyle in one or two of these areas, then you are endangering rewards in eternity. 
Paul would recommend that you intensify your spiritual battle against these sins. In other words, let's take something that may seem harmless. If you were in college or when you were young, you committed a couple of these sins. But you realized, let's say God the Holy Spirit, he brought you to the point where you knew that it was a sin. You confessed it and you moved away from it and your spiritual life no longer contains that sin or at least you're battling it. Well, then you're not known as someone who has a lifestyle of being a drunk. Just use that one. Might be easier. So if you drank a little too much college, I think some people do, and you no longer do that, and you knew it was wrong, and you confessed it, you moved away from it, then you're not on that list. Hopefully that helps some of you. Fourteen. Paul's point is that a lifestyle of sin results in loss of inheritance or rewards in the future. His point, a lifestyle of sin results in loss of inheritance, rewards in the future. And that's what he's trying to teach. And again, there are those who read this list and say, I I can't believe that any believer would ever do these things. Well, guess what? People have been doing this all their lives. The question is, have you confessed them and tried to mature, mature, uh, grow spiritually mature to avoid these? Stop living this way. And I guess that's the question we must, or that's how we must say it. Stop it. 15. In verse 11, Paul identifies y'all Let me read verse 11. And such were some of you all. So, in verse 11, Paul identifies you all as all the believers in the church. And some as a subset subset of you all. So, when he says, and such were some of you all. He's saying that there is this circle. Of y'all. And they're all believers. But there's a subset of some of you. Does that make sense? Y'all. Some of you all. Some. Subset. In verse 11, Paul identifies y'all as all the believers in the church. And some as a subset. Verse 16. Some are believers who once fit into the list or on the list, but have changed. They are the ones, they are the only ones who changed. And by the way, in Corinth, this could be very easily understood because that was the uh, society in which they lived, from which they came. And if they come to church and continue to live a lifestyle that includes those on this list, then they are y'all, but they're not some. They haven't changed. 17, Paul addresses the believers who are not part of the subset. But y'all were washed. You all were sanctified and justified. They are believers, but they're not living like 
believers. That's what Paul is trying to teach in this paragraph. Paul addresses the believers who are not part of the subset. But they were washed. And we could go to Titus 3 and see that God the Holy Spirit has washed us. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Why aren't you living as if you are washed, sanctified, justified? Those believers who are not part of the subset are not living like believers. And if you're not living in an obedient way, you will lose rewards. You will not inherit the rewards that you could receive had you been faithful, had you been obedient, had you been living as a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is a great passage, and we're thankful for the Apostle Paul as he speaks to the Corinthians about their sins, which is really for them a lifestyle. But we're not critical of them. We're thankful for them because it helps us to understand how we're to live and the fact that there is an inheritance for us and that we will be with the Lord Jesus Christ in our resurrection bodies in the future and we will have received our rewards depending upon how we've lived our spiritual lives. Help us, Father, to understand what Paul's saying. Help us to apply it to ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.